Hey everybody, Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into our podcast at Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Would you be interested? Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. We don't have lasers. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage, but we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the whole world. We sing psalms and hymns, and we preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We love Jesus, and we're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. So would you be interested in coming to a church like that? If so, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. And feel free to visit our website, gospelfellowshippca.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. And now for today's message. Have our Bibles now. We're going to turn to the Gospel of Mark, where we've been studying for some time together as a congregation. We're going to read Mark 14, verses 43 and following. And as you find that, would you go ahead and stand up with me for the reading of God's Word as we recall that God's Word is holy, it is infallible, it is inerrant, it is the very authority over our lives. God's word is powerful and true in all that it says. In Mark chapter 14, verse 43, listen now to the word of God. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against us? Have you come out as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Verse 53, And they came, and they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, verse 58, We've heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. 
May the Lord add His blessing to the reading and the hearing of His holy word. Amen. You may be seated. You ever, ever got dressed in the dark before? If you have a big day or an important meeting, I, I don't recommend it. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll get dressed in the dark because I get up before my wife does and I don't want to turn on the lights. And I'll go about my morning tasks, maybe go for a run, maybe do some Bible reading or something like that. And, and uh, she'll tell me, hey, your shirt's on backwards. Have you ever done that before if you get dressed in the dark? Your shirt on backwards. I've even gone to work like that before. I've gone to work. I've even had meetings and somebody will kindly tell me that my shirt is on backwards. And of course, you're mortified when you hear, you hear something like that. It's a, it's a mistake. It could happen to everybody. But sometimes I think it's not me, though, that's the problem. Sometimes I think it's the world that's backwards. It feels to me like the world is the one that's inside out, that the world is the one with the problem, that things are twisted up and upside down. I, Look around in our society today and I I see the fact that sometimes people that appear to be good or innocent or helpful or just get smeared, they get lied about, they get mocked, they get derided and I say to myself, that seems backwards, that seems inside out. And sometimes the people that are appear at least to be terrible, detrimental, evil even, these people on the contrary, are lifted up and exalted. And sometimes we see, even in our justice system, we see people that would appear to us to be innocent, that are punished. And sometimes we see people that are punished, that appear to be innocent, or vice versa. People that are guilty go free. And sometimes all we can do is we can throw our hands up in the air and say, this seems backwards, this seems wrong, this is twisted, it's inside out. And in our text this morning, you're going to see, and we're going to look through this passage again this morning, and you're going to see an event that would appear to be, at least superficially, an act of justice. They're having a trial. It's supposed to be just. It's supposed to be fair, right? After all, that's the purpose of having a trial in the first place. And yet at almost every stop throughout this entire text, there's going to be a part of you that cries out, this is backwards, this is wrong. This is inside out. This is upside down. What is happening here? You're going to be frustrated with this text. I'm just going to warn you that the closer you look at this text, the more frustrating it's going to be to you, the more backwards, the more inside out this trial of so-called justice is going to be as we look at it carefully. In fact, even the fact that this is some sort of a legal proceeding is ironic because the scholars tell us that there's already at least three things that are illegal about this trial before they even hit the gavel on the table and begin. First of all, the trials weren't supposed to happen at night. This trial is taking place at night. That's illegal according to the Jews' own bylaws, their own standards of righteousness. This trial takes place during a festival, which again was supposed to be illegal according to their own rules of procedure. And then, interestingly enough, it doesn't even take place in the normal courtroom of the Sanhedrin where they would normally gather, but it appears to take place at the high priest's house. And if you're a conspiracy theorist, which some of you are, (laughs) ask yourself this, how did they get a quorum that night? How did they all of a sudden know where to gather? There was no Facebook, there's no group texts, there's no email blast announcements, and yet Check this out. How did this happen? They all 
happened to know right where to gather and when to do so at night at the wrong place during a festival weekend. Interesting, isn't it? Almost feels like a setup. If I didn't know better, I might think it was. It says in verse 53, they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. I ask it again, how did they know to come together on this festival at night in the wrong place? Interesting, isn't it? Seems backwards. It seems inside out. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at five deep and striking ironies in this passage that, if you're following along carefully, are going to want to make you pull your hair out in frustration because sometimes the world is just backwards. So five ironies from this text. Here's the first one. Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. He is betrayed with a kiss. Look at your Bible. If you close your Bible, let's go ahead and open it right back up. Let's do some work together in the scriptures this morning. Jesus is betrayed with a kiss. Have you ever noticed the irony of that? Isn't that interesting? Look at verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him and he laid his, they laid hands on him and seized him. A kiss. Think about this. Kiss is how we greet our wives because we love them, because we care about them. We kiss our children. We kiss our friends and our family, those that are close to us. In fact, even in the early church, we know this from reading the letters of the Apostle Paul, that the early church developed what would be a sign of greeting called in Romans 16, 16, the holy kiss. And so even from early on, the Christians established that the kiss was going to be a special greeting amongst those who believe. We see this also in 1 Corinthians 16, 20. And in other places, Paul will say, greet one another with a holy kiss. And interestingly, the kiss was also a sign back in the ancient world of respect that a student would give to his master or uh, the class would give to their professor. They had uh, ancient ways of training and knowledge. We have the university system today, but in those days you would devote yourself perhaps to a, a rabbi or a teacher and the kiss was the sign of respect and endearment and honor that you would give to your master. And so notice that even as Judas approaches Jesus to give the sign, he calls out to him, Rabbi, and he gives him this kiss, this sign, which is the very sign of betrayal, a deeply ironic act, don't you think? Duplicitous, false, inside out, backwards. A kiss is the sign of betrayal. Now, one thing that I find interesting is in John's gospel, and Mark and John are a lot in dialogue in this particular text, but in John's gospel, in John chapter 13, as Judas is about to leave the meeting, remember just the previous scene where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, John's gospel says that Satan entered into Judas. That is striking language because it's the only time that at least I'm aware that Satan himself is described as entering into a human being. Now, of course, we see the demons doing all sorts of affliction, oppression, possession, whatever we, we want to call it, but it's extraordinarily rare. In fact, it's the only time that I'm aware of that Satan himself is said to enter a person. And here in John 13, it says Satan entered Judas. And so that's why Judas is able to pull off this disgustingly ironic betrayal of Jesus, calling out to him a term of endearment, rabbi, and yet betraying him with a kiss. And before we 
leave off from this topic, we might want to ask ourselves, do we have more in common with, with Judas than we'd like to admit? You say, well, no way. What do you mean by that? Well, Judas is acting as a complete hypocrite in this moment. He's acting outwardly in a way that would seem to be pious. He's acting outwardly in a way, a manner that would seem to be religious, that would seem to be faithful, and yet deep inside his heart, there is nothing but blasphemy and hate. Nothing but disregard. Nothing but discord. Interesting and ironic. Deeply disturbing. The betrayer betrays with a kiss. But that's not the only irony in this text. Let's go on to the second one. This is number two. The witnesses in this trial are liars. Now, witnesses are supposed to testify to what they've actually seen. That's like principle number one in all forms of jurisprudence. Witnesses are called to testify to that which is true. They take an oath. But in this case, the witnesses are liars. Look at verse 57. And some stood up and they bore false witness against him saying, verse 58, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now many dangerous lies can be founded on entirely groundless accusations. Lies don't have to be even remotely true to be damaging. If you've ever been lied about, you probably know that that is so. But unfortunately, the lies that end up doing the most damage to personal relationships, reputations, and even in the courtroom are those lies that have at least a kernel of truth. And in this case, the lying testimony that the witnesses are giving do have a kernel of truth to them. What is that kernel of truth that they're bearing forth before the Sanhedrin council? Well, Jesus did say something about the temple being torn down and a new temple being built up. And that story, again, is in John chapter 2. This was something that Jesus said a while back that they seized upon like pit bulls and they never let go. In fact, for the rest of Jesus' ministry, they're going to take the statement and they're going to distort it and twist it to his damage. What did Jesus mean? Well, if you go back to John chapter 2 in the context of that statement, Jesus is talking about the temple being torn down. And yes, it actually would be torn down in AD 70. We've discussed that in a number of sermons here at Gospel Fellowship. But when Jesus speaks about this raising up of the newer or better temple, he is, of course, talking about his own resurrection. And so one system of atonement would be ended, and another system, the gospel of grace, would be raised up as Jesus is raised at the resurrection. And that's what Jesus meant. But they seized upon the statement, and they twisted it, and they made him look as though he was some sort of a domestic terrorist. They're charging him with threatening the very temple himself. Obviously, that's not what he meant. Obviously, Jesus is no insurrectionist. He is no seditionist. He is no traitor. He means no domestic terrorist threats to the institution of the temple. He was making a very clear spiritual point, and they took it, they seized upon it, they twisted it, and they never let it go. In fact, when we come to the actual crucifixion scene in the next chapter, Mark 15, even as Jesus hangs on the cross, Mark 15, they're still mocking him for this statement about the temple being torn down and raising up a new one. They never let it go. And here's the thing, believers, that lies are especially damaging to those who do not have the ability to discern truth from error. The Sanhedrin that day, 
swallowed up these false testimonies because they wanted to believe it. Their ears were attuned to hear the lie and to receive it, and their minds, unfortunately, were not sharp enough, or at least their hearts were too dull to recognize the difference between truth and error, distortion and validation. They could not discern it, or they didn't want to. And so we have to be very careful, believers, that we train our ears, right, to hear the differences between truth and error. We're in a political season. And I don't want to spend too much time on this this morning, but we have to develop the kind of ears that are able to discern the difference between truth and error. Could you recognize an ad hominem if you heard one? You know what an ad hominem is? It's an argument in which you attack the man, but you have nothing to say about the rationale of his actual uh, ideas. Would you be able to recognize that? How about an ad populum? Do you know what that is? A non sequitur, would you be able to follow one of those in an argument? Would you be able to identify that? How about circular reasoning? Could you identify a straw man if you heard one? If not, we better be careful to train our ears to discern the difference of truth and lies. The witnesses were liars. And it's frustrating to us, right? And now, here's the third one. Here's the third irony. This one will perplex you, I think. Third irony, the word remains silent. The word remains silent. Who is the word, church? Christ. That's right. You know John 1. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God, and the word became flesh, John 1.14. And yet here in this passage, it's interesting, isn't it, that the word remains silent. Look with me at verse 60. And the chief priest stood up in the midst and he asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, verse 61, and made no answer. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read this passage, there's a part of me that wants to say, Jesus, speak up. Defend yourself. Jesus, clarify what you meant. Give them what you meant by that temple being torn down and the new one being raised up. Tell them again, Jesus, about the resurrection, how that's what you meant, not these threats that they're twisting and distorting your words. And part of me wants to say, Jesus, defend yourself. Why don't you say something? Isn't that agonizing? It makes me so frustrated. I look at this trial and I say, this is all backwards. This is all inside out. What's happening here? Jesus, say something. And throughout the whole Gospel of Mark, Jesus has gone around as the Word. He is the Word. He is the revelation of God, the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus has poured forth beautiful, gracious speech like Psalm 45 says. He's been preaching. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been uttering parables. He's been quoting the Old Testament. He's been lifting up the downtrodden with his gracious words. Jesus has been speaking words of beauty and truth throughout the entire gospel. And now in the very moment, now in the very moment where it would seem as though he ought to say something, he doesn't. Why not? Well, I'll give you three short reasons why he doesn't say anything in this moment. The first has to do with the fulfillment of of prophecy. Jesus stands silent before his accusers because long ago, Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 says, As a lamb before her shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
Jesus says nothing in this moment to these false accusations because it was foreordained of God that as Messiah takes upon these heaping lies and insults of his false accusers, that he would stand them down without a word of of refutation. And Jesus fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 7 in this moment. That's one reason he's silent. Here's another. Because his entire life is the refutation of these arguments. His entire life has been a refutation of these lies. You cannot pin a charge of blasphemy to the chest of Jesus Christ. It will not stick. Everything that Jesus has done has been in perfect compliance and conformity to the will of God, to the law of God. Throughout every moment in the Gospels, we've seen Jesus do nothing but love, nothing but speak the truth, nothing but lead a life that is just and fair. And so he need not actually refute these liars because his whole life is the refutation, you see? When you accuse Jesus of a sin, it's kind of like punching a brick wall because you lose just for trying, right? You can't do it. His entire life is invincibly, unthwartably holy. Therefore, he need not banter with liars as though he were on their level. Doesn't need to do it. Give you a final reason, and this is a bit nuanced theologically. Calvin in his Institutes, and this is actually brilliant. John Calvin in his Institutes says that Jesus had to die in this very way. Jesus had to die by means of, Calvin says, trial, witnesses, verdict, and execution. Those four parts, all necessary. Trial, witnesses, verdict, and execution. Why does Calvin say that? Because Jesus could not have died in any other way as an atonement for our sins. So for instance, Calvin considers the possibility, well, what if somebody assassinated Jesus? Calvin says no. What if Jesus died by an accident? Maybe he gets in a chariot crash or something like that. Calvin says no, that wouldn't work. Calvin says it all has to take place this way. Here's why. Because as Jesus is experiencing the trial, the witnesses, the verdict, and the execution, he's standing in our place, dying vicariously for us. It's us who should have been on trial, right? Jesus is going through what we would go through if we were to stand before the very judgment seat of God himself. There would be a trial. There would be witnesses. All of the actions of our lives, the testimony of God himself would come upon us. There would be a verdict of guilty upon our lives and there would be an execution of judgment in hell forever. And Calvin says, as unfair as this trial would seem to human eyes, As unjust as the proceedings appear to be, Calvin says Jesus had to go through each of these stages, trial, witnesses, verdict, execution, because he is doing this for us on our behalf. Now finally, Jesus does say something here, and it comes in verse 62. So look at this. When asked directly, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, Jesus responds with these words. Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power 
and coming with the clouds of heaven. And in that line, verse 62, Jesus actually quotes a number of scriptures directly. Uh, Psalm 110, that's the line about being seated at the right hand of the Father, or the right hand of God. And then Daniel 7.13 is this imagery of coming with the clouds of heaven. But there's more to it even yet than that. Interestingly, last week we looked at the humanity of Christ. Remember our Christ, he is both fully God and he's fully man. And last week in Jesus' agony at the Garden of Gethsemane, we saw his humanity really drawn to the surface, didn't we? As, as Jesus is sweating like drops of blood. Remember this scene where we see, wow, this is his, his, his humanity here as he falls to the ground. His humanity. And yet in this text, this quotation that Jesus strings together where he, sa- he says this line, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is testimony of his divine nature. How so? This is testimony of Jesus' divine nature because this imagery of coming on the clouds of heaven is actually Old Testament language usually pertaining to Jehovah God or Yahweh himself. It is the Lord God who strides upon the clouds as though they were his chariot, right? Here, I'll give you an example. Psalm 104 verse 3 says this, He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters and he makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. You get the imagery here that it's the Lord God, Jehovah, Yahweh, who rides upon the clouds as though they were his chariot. And yet Jesus is summoning the same imagery and says that you will see the Son of Man seated, right? And yet coming on the clouds of heaven. So even in this moment, Jesus is testifying to his divine authority as the Son of God. Now let's go to two more ironies here and we'll finish up this morning in our study. The fourth irony is that the judges will be judged. The judges themselves of this so-called legal proceeding will themselves be judged. Look at verse 63. And the high priest tore his garments and he said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. So there's his verdict. See it? Verse 63. Now if you just pause and think about that incredible statement. This is an extraordinary moment in redemption history. You have the creation switching roles with the creator and the, these, these created finite sinful human beings, what are they doing? They're pronouncing judgments as though they were the judge with a capital J on the very Son of God himself. You see that irony? You see how flipped over that is? You want to talk about upside down? The creation judging the creator. You know the scripture says that the Son of God is the co-creator of all things with the Father and the Spirit. The work of creation is the work of the Trinity. And here, these finite sinful human beings are pronouncing judgment on the very Lord of lords and King of kings. Isn't Isn't that ironic? Completely backwards. And what do they find him guilty of? Blasphemy, interestingly, as though God could blaspheme himself, impossible. And all the council apparently concludes the same. And so we see this verdict being brought forward against the Son of God. Now I do want to bring this up. This is interesting and I'm not sure how to resolve this myself. 
It appears that twice in this text it says that the whole council agreed on this. So look at 1465. Or 64, rather. You've heard his decision, or his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all, see that word, 64? They all condemned him as deserving, deserving death. Now, I'm not sure what to do with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea here. Because there were at least a couple of Sanhedrin members that appeared to be favorable to Christ at different places in the gospel. You remember Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night, John chapter 3, and Jesus famously said, you must be born again. And Jesus even said, John 3.16, the verse that we all know, for God so loved the world, etc. That was to Nicodemus, one of the Jewish ruling council. That's the Sanhedrin. And then we have, uh, we have another guy, Joseph of Arimathea. You probably know him as the man who donated the tomb to uh, Jesus in his burial. And Luke even says, here, let me, listen, let me, let me uh, read this to you. Listen. Uh, Luke 23 says, Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea, He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action for he was looking for the kingdom of God. So that appears to be perhaps a little bit of a difficulty there because Mark chapter 14, 64 says they all condemned him as deserving death. So what do we do with that? Well, it's possible that they weren't invited to the sham trial. That's one possibility, that they weren't there. Uh, Another possibility is that they were simply shouted down in that moment. And so that the whole of the council shouted to condemn him, but their voices were not heard. That's that's another possibility. I've even been in presbytery meetings where the opportunity for a nay vote is not even given. It seems to be so unanimous. All in favor say aye. Everybody says aye. They don't even give an opportunity to say nay. So that's possible too. But here's the most interesting line. The high priest asks this question, and I'm going to ask it to you too as a congregation. What is your decision? And in that moment, all of the judges will be judged for what they say. Right? The trial is going to be righted. The inside out is going to be flipped back. The upside down will be restored. And God will do the judging. And all of this impinges upon the important question of what judgment do you render about Jesus Christ? Same question that they had to answer, so also do you. Will you reject Him? Will you set Him aside? Will you push Him off? Will you hold Him at an arm's distance? If you're going to do that, I say go ahead and do what they did in verse 65. They began to spit on him and, do, and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards too received him with blows. If you're going to reject Jesus, don't be duplicitous like Judas and pretend to be religious on the outside. Meanwhile, you harbor bitterness and hatred in your heart. Don't be a hypocrite. If you're going to reject Jesus, just go full Monty like the Sanhedrin does and reject him entirely. But if you're going to accept Christ, if you're going to receive him as Lord and King and God, then by all means, obey him and surrender your whole life to him. Hold nothing back. Follow him. Love him. Worship him. Glorify him with all that you have. And this is the last irony here, but this is the beautiful one. We've looked at four ironies that are somewhat disturbing so far this morning, but how about this one? In this trial, sinners will be justified. Sinners will be justified. Who are the sinners? That's us. 
What will become of us? We will be justified by grace. And so, ironically, the whole thing, although it seems to be inside out, twisted, turned backwards on itself, this is the very mechanism in redemption history, Christ dying for us by which we are ultimately vindicated as just in His sight, though we are sinners. So the deepest irony is the most beautiful of all, that this is the way that God restores us to Himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this passage. We thank You, Father, for the visible sign and seal of the covenant of grace this morning and the baptism that we have participated in together as a congregation. And Lord, we give You thanks and praise for Your Son, who was accused, tried, condemned, and executed on our behalf that we who are sinners would be justified and we pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and receive the benediction as we close. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and give you his peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Everybody. My name is Rob, and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.